Well, if you have joined us since the beginning of our service this morning, you may have may have missed just the opening note that we are in the midst of an ongoing series in the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter five this morning. We are we're getting getting close to the end of this marvelous letter from the Apostle Paul, but but one of the things we don't want to rush past to the end is these detailed instructions he gives in the various spheres of our life at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 and and moving into Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to take time in the next few weeks, well this week and next week in marriage specifically, but then if you actually have your Bibles open, I'll encourage you to do that this morning. You have pew Bibles in front of you as well. You can look on in this, in this text. Ephesians chapter 5, if you look ahead to Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see that children and parents are addressed. So we've got more coming attractions in the days ahead. And then, and then it gets easier, bond servants and masters. That'll be easy, I'm sure. So we look at, Look at that. And then you'll see the whole armor of God that will come in, in Ephesians chapter six. So we've got some, some, some challenging, beautifully challenging text that the Lord puts before us here in Ephesians chapter five. I, I say that to, to not scare you away from being here on Sunday morning, but hopefully to perk your interest. But what is it that the Lord wants to say to me? About marriage, what does he want to say to me about parents and children? What does he want to say about vocation and my, my role or various roles that the Lord might have me in in the course of my life as an employer, as an employee? All of this instruction on the spheres that are given to us here in Ephesians chapter 5 and, and Ephesians 6 come on the heels of what he's been saying to us earlier in Ephesians chapter 5. That's why if you look at our text this morning, we're starting in verse 15. I want to remind you of where we've been because all of these things move together as a bolt of cloth in, in Paul's mind. And you'll remember that he called us to walk in love at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 2, actually, walk in love as his beloved children. And then Ephesians 5, 8, he says, walk in light. Walk in light. As you have the stability of God's love, then walk in his commands, walk in his obedience, walk in the things that are good and right and true. Walk in the light. As you walk in his love and as you walk in the light, we looked at last week the importance of walking in wisdom. In fact, wisdom comes when we walk in God's love and we walk in his light, we begin to grow in his wisdom. And you'll see in verse 15, even the beginning of our text this morning, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We're starting back there uh, today. Now, in this particular section that we're looking at, and as we go into Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see that Paul says, I want you to see walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom only comes from the source of being filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you're supposed to ask yourself, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And then he gives you four participles in verses 19 to 21. 
He says it looks like addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Speaking to one another in worship as we looked at last week together. As you sing, you're instructing one another in the truths of the Lord. It looks like addressing one another. It looks like singing to the Lord, making melody in your heart. Verse 19, communion, a vertical relationship with the, with, with the God of heaven and earth. That's what it looks like. It also looks, verse 20, living in thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for, for everything, it says. Addressing one another, singing giving thanks. And then notice verse 21. Here's what filling with the Holy Spirit looks like. It looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that submitting to one another is actually going to be what leads us in the text. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Interestingly, verse 22 doesn't actually have the word submit, by the way. It's pulled in from that participle of verse 21. It's the context for it. It's saying, in other words, filling of the Holy Spirit looks like addressing, singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. Now, let me show you what submitting looks like in families, husbands and wives. Let me show you what submitting looks like with parents and children. Let me show you what submitting looks like in your workplace. Let me show you what submitting looks like in spiritual warfare. That's what he's doing. He's unpacking this throughout. So he's not just He's not just picking on one particular person or, or group or, or gender or any of those things. We're all going to be instructed as we go through. And so it's important to know that structure, even as we read the text this morning, is that Paul is pulling a thread through. And he's saying, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom leads to submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And here's what it looks like in all the various spheres of your life. And so it's important that as we enter into this text that you can see that grammatical structure because it'll really help you embrace what it is that Paul is teaching to us here about the importance of marriage. As I mentioned at the beginning of our time together, this will be a kind of a, a larger message, a, a message from the standpoint of we're going to look at marriage throughout Scripture. We'll spend a little time here in this text and But we'll also pull from other places so we can get a big vision for it. And then we'll come back next week and we'll dig in more specifically uh, into the text that's before us. So with that as an introduction, let's look together at verse 15, Ephesians chapter 5. This is God's Word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your whole heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as Christ submits, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that he might be holy and without that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I say that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we pray that the few minutes we have together in this, your word today, you would bless us with a special pouring out of your grace through the Holy Spirit today, helping the variety of ears and hearts who are here in this room hear exactly what needs to be heard that you have determined to speak. Come and be mindful of our need. Illumine this your word and change us from the inside out. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm well aware as we approach a text like this how many different stories are are in this room. There are those of you who are sitting next to spouses and might be tempted to elbow them throughout this sermon in different ways. And some of those relationships are sweet and precious and full of joy and harmony and some of those marriages are not. That's just the reality of it. There are marriages that are healthy. There are marriages that are, that are unhealthy. We, you may be in a sweet season. You may be in a really hard season in your marriage. We need help for the Holy Spirit to help us hear this the way that we need to hear this, don't we? That we don't just listen for what we hope the other should hear this morning, but that we listen for what the Lord has for us. Some of you are single in this room. And some of you who are single in this room wish you were married. Some of you are single in this room and you're glad you're not married. You know who you are too. The Bible does not teach that you are in some way incomplete because you are not married. It's very important to know that. And the Bible cannot teach that, by the way. Because that would mean that Jesus would be incomplete in his earthly life. He was never married in that human sense of what we're talking about when I'm speaking of marriages in this room, you see. He was not incomplete in any way, was he? And yet he was not married. Even Paul, right, in 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that he wishes that those who are unmarried would remain even as him. And he refers to singleness, celibacy, there's some debate around this, as a gift. Kind of calling from the Lord. I think we should honor that. You should know that as we approach this text this morning. There are those of you who are divorced in this room. Any mention of marriage brings up a painful memory for you. 
I'm aware of that as we approach this text. The fact that your marriage did not survive may may be a, a reality that in this moment brings a sense of shame to you. And I want you to know that whether that marriage was of a biblical grounded support or not, divorce is not the impardonable sin. And God forgives. And if you're a child of Him, you should walk in the beautiful righteousness of Christ and know His grace for you this morning, no matter what your story is. Some of you are widowed. And you think about a spouse who was once sitting by your side and is no more. And you have the best of memories and there is a terrible ache that he or she is not by your side. And some of you are widowed and as you look back over your marriage, it was never what you hoped it would be. And to be quite honest, as much as you miss that individual, it has more to do with just the longevity of history and not so much deep feelings of affection. And you might even feel a little guilt yourself that maybe you're a bit free in the fact that you are a widow or a widower. How can I speak to all of these many things and many more things that I could speak to? Because I talk to you. And you talk to one another. You know these stories are among us. And it makes approaching the subject that we're in hard, doesn't it? We bring a lot to bear. We need to acknowledge all of that as we approach this text. And we need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me Lay some of these things to the side so I can hear from you this morning. Not act like they're not there. Not suppress them or ignore them. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to name them and honor them and then have them step aside. And behold the word of God in the face of Christ today. So that you can hear what it is he's communicating to you. It needs to be named. So that we can see what it is that the Lord has for us. But if you're single, divorced, or or widowed this morning, you may be asking the question, why should I even care about a sermon on marriage? Why should I even care? Can I give you three reasons why you should care? Are you okay with that? First of all, because you love your married brothers and sisters in Christ who are around you. And the Christian life is about submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And that means laying aside your own interests to take up the interests of others. It's actually good for you to learn about other people, even if it's not about you. Sometimes we come into worship and we say, I hope I get something out of worship today. Do you ever think, I hope others get something out of worship today? Well, that may be what you need to be praying right now for your brothers and sisters in Christ all around you. Number one, because you have married brothers and sisters in Christ that you love and care about. Secondly, Because marriage is a biblical theme and reality that ties all of the Scripture together, and you love and care about the Scripture. Marriage is a biblical theme and reality that ties all of Scripture together, and you care about the Scripture, and so you want to know about it. You want to know about it, even if you are personally not married. But thirdly, if you're single, widowed, divorced in here, I want you to know that you are married. 
in the truest and deepest and eternal sins imaginable. And when you study marriage, you study your present and future glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. I am not looking at anyone who is in Christ this morning who is not married in the deepest and truest sense. That's why we need to study this word, you see. It's it's applicable for all of us, no matter where it is that you are. And so these two things I want us to see, based upon all of that, based upon thinking about all of this, I want us to see just two things about marriage this morning, jumping off from several things that Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see that marriage is about God. So the first thing I want you to see, marriage is about God. And the second thing I want you to see is that marriage is about the gospel. That marriage is about the gospel. Marriage is about God and marriage is about the gospel. Did, did you notice this? I'm going to jump around a little bit. If you noticed verses 28 and 29, notice the language. It's a little odd, actually, when you first hear it. Husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. You know, it's, it's really an unusual phrase. You, you don't expect it when you're working your way through this section because he's like, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church, gave himself up for her. And he's like, he's lofty, you know, he's mirroring to Christ, you know, all the way through this passage. And then he goes, you know, if that's hard for you, why don't you just love her as your own body? It's like, he's like, Let's just get to the lowest common denominator, right? That's sort of what it could feel like, right? It's a little, we crescendoed early, you know, in this text, and we kind of went out with a whimper, you know, just love her as your own, own body, you know? That's not what's going on. Do you, do you remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as your self? Could it be that the Apostle Paul is actually drawing the whole of the great commandment together here? I think he is. Love her as Christ has loved the church. Love with all of the love from which God has loved you in Christ Jesus. And then she's your closest neighbor. Love her as if she is your very self because, well, she is. Why would I say it that way? Well, notice where he goes in the text. Husbands, love your wives as your own body, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Verse 31. Here Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. She's actually a part of you. You together are actually one. When you love her, you love yourself. You're covenantally tied together as one. Now, when you begin to think about why Paul would do this, he wants to build for us a memory biblically theologically, going back in the scriptures to remember where marriage came from. That's why it quotes from Genesis chapter 2 here. Genesis 2 is a critical text in understanding uh, marriage. It's there where we see the creation of, of woman in the first marriage in human history, Adam and Eve. And it's in the creation of woman 
where we can really understand this statement, husbands love your wives as your own body. Do you remember in Genesis, man was created from the dust of the earth. That is Adam. Woman was created how? Out of the body of man. Out of the very body of man. At the warm marrow and DNA of, of Adam post-surgical procedure in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, that rib was what the Lord used to fashion the physical form, the, the, the blood vessels, the skeletal structure, the muscle tissue of what would become woman. She is literally made out of the materiality of man. And so when, when Paul says, and so love her as your own body, he's saying, remember how all this went down. Remember how all of this, all of this happened. She like literally is your body. There's a oneness that goes back to the very heart of creation in this covenantal relationship that's been, been formed in the earliest days of creation. Do you remember his poem, Adam's poem? At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What does he see? He sees himself in one sense. One perfectly suited and made for him. John Calvin commenting on this particular section in Genesis 2 says, Now at length. Adam says, I have obtained a suitable companion who is the substance of my own flesh and in whom as I behold her is as another self. Is as another self. Now, why don't I take a few minutes in this? Well, I think that's why, why, what Paul is meaning to hearken us back to. But he's, he's telling us that the creation of man and woman and marriage is meant to be a reflection of Him. A reflection of God Himself. And the creation of woman and the marriage union established in Genesis 2 is a beautiful reflection of God Himself. Now, why do I say that? Well, think of it here. I'm going to give you two truths. Truth number one. Woman is made of the substance of man which speaks to her equality with man. Woman is made of the substance of man which speaks to her equality with man. When we speak of God, how do we speak of him? We speak of him in the way that the confession speaks of him, which is the biblical way of understanding the being and nature of God. God is same in substance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being, equal, the confession says, the catechism says, equal in power and in glory. 
equal in power and in glory. Now, why would God go to the trouble of making woman out of man so that they would be of the same substance? Why would he do that? He could have just gathered up some other dust and created a woman. Why did he do, why did he do it the way he did it? Because he wanted us to be like him. He wanted male and female to represent the kind of unity that he shares as same in substance, equal in power and glory as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wanted the beautiful portrait of marriage to say something about him. That's what he wanted. But notice what happened in this. Notice that the second truth Different from the first, building on the first, is equally important. Though same in substance with man, the woman is different from the man. Amen? Amen and amen. The woman is different from the man. The man is different from the woman. She's not identical to him. He's not identical to her. The father is not identical to the son in their personness. Not identical to the spirit in their, their persons. You know, we, can, we can't say, for instance, that the father died on the cross. You know, we don't say that. Because there's a dis- difference in the persons. There's a distinctness that's there. We don't say, right, that the father dwells inside your heart. Don't say that. As we're speaking in person's language. There's a difference. There's a same in substance, equal in power and glory, but the persons of the Trinity are different, male and female. Same in substance, equal in their, their, their sense of power and glory, but boy, are they different. Boy, boy are they, they different. And, and their different is complementary. It's meant, even in the language of Genesis chapter 2, it's meant for the two to be able to come together as a whole so that they would express a oneness of which the Trinity itself is a picture of. You know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They're one. They're beautifully one. And what is, what is male and female supposed to be? Well, they're to come together as one flesh. There's a, there's a oneness. In fact, interestingly, that language in Genesis chapter 2 of helper could be translated as, as language of opposite. Language of opposite. And you think to yourself, well, that's how it feels, right? <laughs> that's, that's exactly how it feels. No, no, that's not what he means. He means in the way our family was doing a puzzle over the course of the summer, which sometimes you know happens. You do things you don't do during the school year as much, right? So you have this thousand-piece puzzle, whatever, on the dining room table. We can never eat at the dining room table because we go, all right. So it's there, and and when you're looking for, you know, you're doing the sky in the puzzle, and you're like, you can't figure out, you know, what piece is supposed to get. But you look in the pieces. You look for the piece that will be opposite that will actually fit together. Identical pieces don't fit together, you say. The, the opposite pieces fit together. The, the complementary, the pieces that are designed to be together. And, you know, if you're like me, I'm always putting it together. I'm like, I think that one works. Like, I think, you know, like I'm pushing, you know, I th- and you realize later as you put the puzzle, you're like, that one, I forced that. I forced that one, right? And you dig it. And then you find that one, and it's so satisfying, isn't it? Like when it slides in and the puzzle is done. 
Think of the satisfaction, the joy, the complementarity of the difference opposite that's meant to create a one. That's the beauty here. He wants you to know that marriage is actually intended to be a reflection of God. Do you know one of the great mistakes we make in, in marriage, I think maybe most of the time when it comes to marriage, is we actually think marriage is about us. Sometimes I, I see couples who are working so hard on their marriage. I mean, like they are going to counseling and they're reading all the books and they're just, and you think to yourself, it feels like a project that they're trying to perfect. And what they really need to do maybe is to actually lift their heads a little bit out of the fog and actually see the divine and see the divine marriage and be lifted up with the beautiful vista of when the perfection of the marriage will be so in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, sometimes we need that, don't we? To lift up out of the, the fog, as it were, into the beautiful sky of the horizon of the divine marriage. Marriage is about God. That's what he's teaching us here. And he's teaching us, uh, secondly, that marriage is about the gospel. Now, why does he have to teach us that marriage is about the gospel? Because is, is marriage created by God not enough? Well, it was enough, and then there was the fall. Right? Do you remember this thing, the fall? Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and, and, and evil, they broke God's commands. They were, let me say it, not submissive to the authority of God. And destroyed their marriage. Right? It's one of the very first, it's the first evidence of the fall that we really see is this realization of shame and nakedness that the two of them experience together. And then they run off and they find the, the fig leaves. And then when God shows up, right, he begins to interrogate them a little bit. He asks a series of questions and comes to Adam, right? Adam, did you eat of the tree? Well, not technically. Technically, it was the woman that you gave me, right? It was the woman that you gave me is the real issue in all of this. And the woman's like, man, that's a good line. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Did you eat of the tree? Did you give to him? Actually, like technically... It was the serpent, right? Right, you know, and you're like, something's changed about their relationship. Like, this has gotten weird all of a sudden. You know that in the text. And you're like, yes, the marriages about God became about us and about protecting me and about defensiveness. And we need to find a way for those defensiveness to come down, for guilt to be expunged, for righteousness to be given, to marriage to be restored, and that's why we need marriage as a pattern of the gospel. And that's really what we see in this text. Did you notice verse 21? Paul can't talk about marriage at all without running up, so to speak, the flagpole to Christ. Notice what he does. Submit to one another, verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, as Christ submits, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You notice he can't make one statement about marriage 
unless he's also talking about the gospel, unless he's also talking about Christ. He even gets to the very end, right? And he goes through, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother, go through all of that, verse 32. This is mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. I was thinking it was about my wife and I, it was about my husband and I. And then he reminds you, yeah, I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church, right? He continues to bring you to the gospel over and over again because we have a tendency to forget the fact that our marriage is actually about showing forth Christ and his love for the church. You know, when you first got married, many of us in this room who are married thought of it as bringing two lives together, right, to form an, another one. But biblically speaking, marriage is actually not bringing two lives together. It's actually leaving the whole life that you've known before and forming a whole new life with this person. Did you notice the language of Genesis 2? Therefore, a husband shall leave his father and his mother. He's, he's leaving behind, as it were, the, the reference point of the life that he's, he's known. You know, a lot of times we, we thought, some of us got married thinking this, you know, it'll be, like, it'll be like, sort of like having a roommate. It'll be kind of like having a roommate. Like there, it'll be, there, the way, it's not gonna be that big of a, of a difference. I was in college with roommates. It's gonna be like that. And then, then you get married and you go, it's not like that at all. It's like I've never experienced anything like this. This is like so much different, so harder, more wonderful. It's just so different. There's nothing like it. It's a whole new life. Do you know that is what the gospel is? When you leave the former life behind, you are a new creature in Christ, right? It's a whole, it's a whole new life. It's not an additional thing to the life that's already pretty good. Or it's not a fix on your bad life that you thought would make it a little better. It's a whole new life. It's a whole new life. Marriage is walking into a whole new life. And notice, it's full of sacrifice. You have to leave something behind. You know, what, what groom, what, what bride on the day of their wedding has it thought to themselves... I hope I'm making a good decision here. Right. I mean, you have that thought, don't you? I've, there's a lot, but this is a big deal. I'm leaving all this stuff behind. I'm kissing this goodbye and I'm, I'm, I'm moving into to marriage. There's a loss. There's a loss to marriage. There's a sacrifice that's built into it. There's huge gains. I'm not trying to minimize that, but there's, there's the gains of marriage don't come without the loss. It doesn't come without the sacrifice. That oneness, that one flesh bound up with another in a sense says you will no longer have your nice little individual life. You remember when that broke in upon you, you know? When you like, I'm going out with the guys tonight, right? And I forgot to tell her. You do that once, you know? And then you realize, 
that's not good. And you think, you say, and there's a moment, I'll tell you what happens in men's mind for, for a moment. You go, the rest of my life will be like this. I will have to get permission for everything. Right? That's what you think, right? It's not so bad. I mean, you know, it'll go along. It'll be okay. It's going to be okay. But it, all of a sudden, you realize there's a restriction. There's a, there's a loss. And then you come home to your, her, and you're like, I'm so glad you're here. I love you. Right? The, the gain is, is so... But not without sacrifice. Not without losses. And that's true throughout the, uh, the marriage. It sounds so restrictive, so in, entangling. Right? Why would someone want to get married? Because you realize that the sacrifice that marriage invites you into is not worthy to be compared to the glory it was designed for. Sound familiar? Should sound familiar. Should sound familiar to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this is actually going to be a practice in sacrifice that will grow my uh, my own sanctification, my own degree of glory, and, and her or his degree of glory, and God's going to use this as a means by which to make much of Himself, and I'm going to live the analogy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's more beautiful to me than the loss of a needing to get permission for the guy's night. And, and we've all had those moments, right, in our, in our marriages where we've wondered, well, was this worth it, right? Was this, oh man, just sitting in that moment. And then as you dial back in to say something like, the commitments I made and the life that we've shared and the fruit that the Lord's born, even in all of its turmoil and trial, it's worth it just to be in relationship with you. Now that feels almost overstated. Isn't it just more worth it to be in relationship with, with Christ and to be in... Well, you thought I was talking about your spouse, didn't you? No, I was talking about the gospel. Have you thought about your spouse as an opportunity to live out the gospel? And to go deeper into the reality and experience of the gospel when things are hard and difficult? Pondering what it must be like for Christ to be married to you. What a patient groom he is. What a loving groom he is. That'll help you. Help you go deep in your marriage. It'll help renew you in your, your marriage. No, I'm not talking about your marriage. I'm actually talking about Christ in the church, you see. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm really talking about a participation in the marriage because you know, have you wondered why your marriage has not fulfilled all your dreams? Have you wondered? Because it's not designed to. It's designed to prepare you for a better spouse. No, not the man and the woman next door. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's why the Lord has given you a spouse. Right? They are a picture and a participation in toward that greater marriage of which you are inclined for. Did you notice today we read from Revelation chapter 21? And what is the church? It's a bride who's adorned for a husband coming down out of heaven. Did you notice we were in Genesis? Did you notice that the Bible begins with a marriage? Did you notice the Bible ends with a marriage? Did you notice that? 
Do you notice the Bible is tied together with this vision of marriage? It's because the whole of the Bible's message really is is marriage. As I was telling a couple recently, they go, well, how does this work in terms of the gospel? Well, think of it. Christ, in love for you, left his family behind. He left his father in, in heaven, just as a husband should do. And he came to earth. And he pursued you as his romantic interest, as his bride. And in the most purest relationship possible, he in commitment to you got down, so to speak, if I can put it this way, on one knee and pledged the whole of his life to you on the cross, humbling himself, taking on all of your sickness and poverty, all of your worse, for better or worse, sickness and health. And he removed everything that would keep you from being his bride in order that he might clothe you in something much better than a wedding dress. The robes of his righteousness. And you know where he's gone? He's gone to prepare a place for you. He, he's not a, a groom who's going to leave you without taking care of you. He's preparing a place for you right now and he's going to come back and he's going to carry you across the threshold and you will be forever with him in a beautiful covenantal one flesh union. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and he sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. There's one place in the Gospel of Matthew that makes happy couples sad and makes unhappy couples relieved. Where Jesus says, you know, there'll be no marriage in heaven There'll be no marriage in heaven. There'll be no giving of marriage in, in heaven. And uh, you may have wondered, what does that mean? Like, will I be able to know my spouse when they're there? Right? Will I be able to recognize him or her? I won't go down that path right now. But that's what you're thinking. He, he says that. You know why Jesus says that? He says that not because heaven will be without marriage. He says that because all of heaven is marriage. The whole thing is marriage, you see. No, not you and your spouse. If you were thinking it was like that, no. It's far better than you can imagine. All of heaven is marriage. And to the degree that we can understand that now, we can get ready for it. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, would you help us get ready for that wedding day, that glorious wedding day that is coming. When, when Christ returns and we see him as he is, Lord, would you even now begin that work afresh in the lives and hearts of us in this room? 
that as much as we may have pain or sorrow or difficulty around this subject of marriage, it gets us ready for the day in which all marriage will be perfect, for we will be in you. Lord, would you get us ready even now as we prepare to come to the table to meet with you as a foretaste of that wonderful marriage feast that is coming for us in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, hear that prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.